I'd like you to open that book, open the Bible. When you have a moment, open it up to 1 John. Of course, we know that uh, 1 John is commonly called uh, the, the book of love. Many people call it that. It's got a lot more to it than that. Uh, but love is, is a big theme and, and for good reason. Thank God when you got born again, you didn't remain the same person. You were transformed. Something happened. You were joined together with God Himself. You were reconciled to God. You know, that's what happened in the garden is that man and God weren't separated until man sinned, of course, and then there was a separation. But we think of God sometimes uh, in a very small way. Sometimes we think of God like He was just that, that voice in the sky or, you know, the great counselor or advisor. But in reality, God is, is, is life itself. God is life. He's light. He's good. Everything good comes from Him. Everything light comes from Him. Everything true is from Him. And so to be separated from that really messes stuff up. And you see that when Adam sinned, remember what happened when Adam sinned? That he said, God told him before you even ate that apple, not apple, but the fruit. He said, before you even eat that fruit, here's what will happen. You will surely die. And of course, the first lie, one of the first lies was, well, you won't die. You won't drop dead. And they thought of death in a physical sense, like your body stopped working. But in reality, we know what really happened was death was separation from God, separation from life. And so the coolest thing is, is that when we get born again, we get rejoined to that life. And we have that newness of life in us. We've been raised up with Jesus Christ. And the Bible says if you've been raised up with Him, you've been resurrected with Him, you can walk in newness or resurrected life every day. So that's awesome. That is life-changing, life-transforming, if you'll let it be. And one of the things we were reconciled to when we were reconciled to God was real love, true love. Not Hollywood love, not, not uh, the worldly love, not love that's there to get what I need and what I want, but love that's from above, love that's real, that lays down your life for others, love that is uh, coming from a different source. And we want to read in verse 7, of 1 John chapter 4. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. I love how he says that he first calls you beloved. What does beloved mean? It means that somebody loves you. And in this case, that somebody is God. You have been loved, and since you have been loved, let's love one another. For love is from God. It doesn't say love is inspired by God, or uh, we see love as a, its best example when we look at God, it says it's actually from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, there are many different words for love, and, and in this case we're talking about a divine love, a love that's not just a, just a family love, a love that's not a husband and wife love. We're talking about God's love that is, is bigger. God's love that, that doesn't need anything from anyone else. It just loves. And it says, everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You know, it's the funniest thing to me. I've, I've met a lot of people. I'm not, not super old, but I've met a lot of Christians in my lifetime. And, um, and some of them, you know, seem, have the appearance of somebody who spends a lot of time with God. Because they tell you they do. And, um, you know, they're, they're always off in some room somewhere, and, and they're saying they're spending time with the Lord. One of the problems 
is if they come out from spending time with the Lord and snap at every single person they come across, I wonder if they've been spending time with the Lord. If there's no true love there and you've been soaking in the presence of God, I think you'd come saturated with love. But some people are even harder to deal with after they've spent this time with the Lord. They fast for 40 days and, and you don't want to get near them for another 40. And they say, well, that's just my spiritual gift. I'm a prophet. Or I'm a, you know, that's often the, no offense to anybody with a prophetic gift here. <laughs> because this is, I, I, took a, I took a book when I was in junior high. And it told, it, it told you what your spiritual gift was based on a lot of natural stuff. Now, there are, there are some books that actually help you to understand what, where you're gifted and things like that. But this one was based on very natural things like, you know, just your personality. And I do believe that, our, that the gifts that God gives us go beyond our personality. They go beyond our ability. That, that we're not walking in the flesh when we're walking in those gifts. We're walking by the Spirit. Now, sometimes that does bleed into your personality. Sometimes I understand that. But uh, one of the things was, are you rude? Are you blunt? Are you just very uh, short with people? Well, you might be a prophet. And I just thought, well, <laughs> you just might be a rude person. <laughs> you know? So anyways... Here's a, here's a litmus test. If you love God, if you know God, there will be love in your life. If you know God, that will be a defining characteristic of your life is love. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. Can somebody think real quick what manifested means? We don't use that in any other way outside of Christianity. We don't say, oh, Ford manifested their new model today. That's not something we talk about. But what does manifested mean? It means to uncover, to reveal. And I love that this says it, the love of God was not manifested to us. It was manifested in us. That's a big difference. Because you could go the rest of your life thinking that I will see the love of God and hopefully I can reflect the love of God. But here he says the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Not just for Him. Not just with Him. But through Him. Everything you do can be done in the power of God and the love of God. It's meant to be. You're meant to live an anointed life. Sometimes we expect, God, I need you. Jesus, take the wheel when it comes to a time of obvious ministry. So, I mean, you, you might get to the point where you, you're real comfortable with your job, you're real comfortable with your relationships, but then somebody asks you to get up, take a microphone and share with the church something, and then you say, oh God, I need you now, I can't do this without you. But that really should have come up through your regular life, in your everyday job. God, I can't do this without you, I don't want to do this without you. It's not just the obvious spiritual things. Life is spiritual. Life is meant to be lived through Him. And so there shouldn't be anything in your life that you, can, that you just think, oh, I've got this handled, I can do this without Him. Everything in life is meant to be done through Him, for Him, and by Him. So here we see that the love of God is manifested in us, and it was that, G that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that there was a reason for it, that we might live through Him. Thank God He brought us from death to life, and the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God. It says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us 
and sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, when we love one another, is it meant to be the same love that God showed us? Or different? It's the same, right? Because that's the love we have. Freely we've received, freely we give. So if it's the same sort of love that God loved us with, then we got to go back to that verse where it says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Now somebody should be able to say about you, this is love. Not that I loved Eric, but that He loved me. In other words, the love of God loves somebody before they ever show any signs of ever loving you. Shows any signs of ever doing anything for you. The love of God moves first, and the love of God keeps moving when they stop. The love of God has nothing to do with how they react to you or how they respond to you. This is how the world lives. The world lives in a constant jacuzzi of emotions where we just kind of recycle things that are going on. If the waitress is having a bad day because somebody talked bad to her, then she might be short with you, which puts you short, and you, you, you're short with the person you're sitting with, and they take it on. And then somebody breaks the cycle and is nice to you in a grocery store and all of a sudden you've got a smile on your face and you want to pay it forward to someone else. But you don't need to live like that. That's how the world lives. We've said this before, but if you were to ask somebody, why do you love this person? They would give you reasons. Well, I love them because they treat me so nice. I love them because they've always been there for me. I love them because they were the first ones to ever love me. But we are able to say, when asked, why do you love this person? We don't need to find a reason based on what they did or based on who they are. You can say, why do you love this person? I love them because he loved me. And we break that recycling chain and all of a sudden our source is God. Our source of love, we're not, I don't need you to love me for me to love you. I don't live that way anymore. I, I ever, all the love I need comes from Him. I've got, I've got a, a tap to an overflowing well that He has never held back on. And when you really come to receive the love of God as free as it is, then you're able to love freely as well. God did not call you to love with a cheap imitation of His love, but to Love as we are loved by God. To forgive as He forgave. Now if you remember, Jesus forgave in a very radical way. If I were to be crucified, which I don't think I will be, but if I were, you know, and say somehow I survived it, I don't know how that would happen. But if you were treated like Jesus was treated, forget the crucifixion. Remember, I mean, let's talk about plucking somebody's beard out, whipping, all these things, spitting in their face. It, it, it would be a big step to be able to forgive them maybe the next day. That would even be a big step to get over it and forgive. But Jesus, while they are still killing him, while, he is in, while they're in the process of murdering him, while they're yelling at him, cursing him and mocking him, he forgives them before they ask for forgiveness, before they show any signs of repentance, before they do anything that indicates they're sorry, he forgives them. And he says, forgive as the Father has forgiven you. Forgive as Christ forgave you. 
Now, the only way you can do that is by receiving what He has. Because you can't pour out what you haven't been given. You can't give what you don't have. So you can fake love all you want and go around. But you've met people like that, haven't you? That go around with a smile on their face and seem to be the nicest person until they explode. You know, they just, they just act nice. But the pressure is building. But you don't need to do that. When you really tap into the love of God and receive the love of God, you're full all the time. You can be full. You can be full of forgiveness. You can be full of life. You can be full of love and have plenty to pour out onto others. So it says, as, so we've, we've been loved, so we ought also to love one another. When he says one another, he's primarily talking to believers. Loving one another. Of course, we're meant to love the world. Yeah. But first and foremost, let's get it right. Let's love each other first. And once we get that handled, we can move on. I think we should do all of it, of course. But he says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. He dwells in us. He sets up a tent in us. And His love is perfected in us. So the only way love is perfected in our life is by practice. is by working it out. You don't, get, you don't wait until love is perfected in you then start loving people. He says, it's perfected as we love. And it says this, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. That means God lives in Him all the time. And He in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love, of, the love which God has for us. That's a huge sentence. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Now maybe that doesn't seem big to you, but that's a big deal. It's a big deal to know the love of God and to finally just believe it. A lot of people know the theory that God loves them. A lot of people, if you, they'll sing Jesus Love Me because the Bible tells me so. They'll tell you the Lord loves them. But if you really get down to it, there's a doubt there. There's some, some qualifications they've put there that they don't feel they meet up. They don't feel they, they match up to. And on some level, they don't really believe that they're loved. They might believe they're loved sometimes. But they haven't grasped the grandeur, the greatness of that love. The overwhelming power of that love like a river that can't be dammed, no matter how many cement blocks you build up, it's still going to break through. And when you really come to believe that love, you're able to pour it out. You see, if you've put measurements on God's love, if you've put qualifications on God's love, then without doubt, when it comes time to love other people, you'll put qualifications on them. If you, don't, if you feel you've got to meet all these things before God will start loving you, then when God says love that person, you'll put all those same things on them. But if you can say what Jesus said to His disciples, freely you've received, now freely give. You'll be able to freely give when you just accept the love of God. Now, the love of God comes through faith in God, right? And faith will always produce action. Love will always produce action. And so you'll find yourself, once you believe the love of God, you'll find that you're meeting the qualifications you would have set for yourself. But you've got to receive the love first. Before you'll be able to do any of that stuff, you've just got to receive the fact that He loves you. Then it says this, By, 
uh, it says, by this love is perfect. I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. How many times does he say that? Must be important. By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. That's a really cool statement. He says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. I love that statement. He says, we love. Not sometimes, not occasionally, but all the time. We love. And the reason we love is because we were first loved. See, because when God's your source, you have to realize He makes the first move. We talked about that before. God makes that first move. We're loved. We were loved. So now we can love. God is that source that you need. And when you're having a depressing day because everybody's treated you like trash, you've got to look to the Lord as your source. Jesus said, out of your innermost will flow rivers of living water. Look how He was treated. I mean, there were times where everybody left him. There were times where his disciples kind of wanted to leave him. And they just said, you know, he said, are you going to leave me too? And they go, well, where else could we go? And if you give us somewhere to go, we might go. But, you know, where else can we go? You hold the words of life. They stuck with them, but everybody else left. He was treated probably the worst that any human's been treated. Who's, I mean, he was the perfect human being, the best teacher, the best preacher, and still people didn't like him. And that should take some pressure off of you. You think people don't like you because, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe it's just that people are people. And the perfect man, the perfect human came to earth and they didn't like him. And still he loved. Did he have to spend some time with his disciples and say, guys, you just need to encourage me. Guys, just build me up. I need some affirmation, guys. I'm really having a hard time. The Pharisees, they made some great points today. And I'm feeling low. Can you just tell me how great I am? Can you sing that song you wrote? How great is our God? You sing that one. It's good. He didn't need any of that. Didn't need affirmation from anyone else. That would be a hard thing. I know we're called to encourage one another. Build one another up. But you shouldn't use that as an excuse for your lack of spiritual activity because somebody didn't compliment you today because all you need comes from Him. If you need affirmation, open the Bible. Find out what He says about you. If Jesus can do it, we can do it, right? His disciples didn't give Him a lot to work with. Do you remember when Peter says, uh, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God? Jesus was like, Wow! That was a big deal. It obviously wasn't daily conversation. Most of the stuff they're talking about is who gets to sit by you? Who gets to sit on your right hand? Who's the best of us? Half the time he's having to shake his head, you know, like you guys don't get it. I love you still, but come on, guys. So if he was counting on them for his affirmation, he would not get it. If he was counting on anybody else, he would not get it. Your source is, the, is God. Your source is, is the Word of God and the life of God. And when you get that, you don't need anybody to tell you you look pretty today. It's, it's okay to tell people that, but you shouldn't have to have it. You can have it right here. Thank God. And then when you do that, you can love freely. 
And you don't have to wait and say, well, I'm just having a bad day. Nobody complimented me, so it's pretty hard for me to compliment. You can just say, you know what? My source is God, and he fills me up every day to overflowing. I've got nothing but good things to overflow onto you. Praise God. Now, he says, we've come to believe this love. He says, we love because he first loved us. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. You can't get much clearer than that. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We're stepping into some territory here that pops up throughout the New Testament. And the question comes to us sometimes, how do I love God? I love the Lord. I love him. Maybe you felt sometime during praise and worship or something like that that you wished you could just reach out and give God a big hug. You ever felt like that before? Like, well, I just want to hug you. But throughout the New Testament, we find out that the way we love God is not by reaching up into the clouds and trying to hug the, the atmosphere. The way we love God is not by blowing kisses to the sky. The way we love God is by loving the body of Christ and, well, whoever else He puts in our path. The way we love God is to love one another. You want to give God a big hug? I bet you can find someone who needs a big hug. And because here He says, if you can't love your brother you can't, that you can see, how can you love God whom you can't see? Now let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew, if you could. We're going to go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 um, is probably often misunderstood. We're not going to get into deep teaching about this parable um, because we don't have time for that tonight. Because this parable is talking about the judgment of nations. You have to understand that, that there, in this parable, he is judging nations. Yeah. And in this case... Uh, there's some complicated themes and things like that that we just don't have time to talk all about. But uh, what's happening here, let's set the stage, is that God is setting up His judgment seat here and Jesus is separating the nations, His brothers, the sheep, the goats. They're all being separated. Now, if you read the New Testament, you know that salvation is not by works. We know that, right? It's, it's hammered into us in the epistles. It's not hammered into us by men. It's hammered into us by the epistles that, that salvation is, is through the gift of God and it's by grace through faith. We know that. So when we see this, I don't want you to think, well, is this all based on whether we did the right things or did the wrong things? No, but there will always be fruits of salvation. There will always be evidence of salvation in a person's life. And uh, here we're, we see the righteous and how they act, and we see the unrighteous and how they act, and there should be a noticeable difference. Now, I realize different people are at different places in their walk with God, and you're not instantly perfect in all your behavior, but we do understand that, that when we got born again, transformation began in our life. And that is a thing of God. And I believe in the power of the cross and the resurrection power of God to give you new life. And so you'll notice as that new life is, is worked in, as that life comes out of you, you'll notice changes pop up. And uh, other people will notice too. In Matthew 25, 
Verse 31, it says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed to my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? And when did we, when did you, we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Now he does say here, he's not, in this particular parable, he says, to the extent you've done it to these brothers of mine. So that's a specific group of people he's talking about. But he says, here's, here's how... Here's how you've demonstrated your righteousness. Here's how you've shown you were mine. Because you didn't even know it was me, and it wasn't me physically, but you did it to these brothers, and I considered it as you did it to them, I considered it as you doing it to me. Even the least of them, even the ones that didn't count for much. Then he says this, And he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now the scripture says very clearly that your righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. Right? He has been made unto us righteousness. That's in 1 Corinthians 1. Many times it says that we have been made righteous, that our cleansing comes from the blood of Jesus. But here's the evidence of the righteous and the unrighteous. Here's how you easily recognize. Is that the righteous didn't know that, that Jesus was in their midst. They didn't see Jesus. And yet the natural reaction of a righteous man, a righteous woman, is to let that love that's been poured in your heart by the Holy Spirit be worked out in practice and that you naturally respond to the things that Jesus would have responded to. You watch as Jesus walked the earth. How did He respond? He didn't respond with pity. You know, he didn't respond. I mean, he was moved with compassion. But what did, what did he do when he was moved with compassion? He healed them. You know, the, the world doesn't need someone else to pat them on the back and tell them, I know, I know, it's tough. That's not going to help them at all. What the world needs is the body of Christ walking as Jesus walked. Doing something about it. Not just sitting back and saying, well, that's too bad for you. I'm going to write a sad song for you but instead being moved as Jesus was moved. Now, you have to first believe that you were loved. You have to believe that you've got something to give. 
And of course we know that there's the supernatural part of, of the things we have to give. In Mark 16, it's very clearly defined that believers will lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. They will cast out evil spirits. They, I mean, all these things will happen. But there's some very practical things that come from a supernatural love. And he says, here's evidence. When you saw me naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you took me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. All of these things were evidence of their righteousness. All of these things showed who they really were. And he says, when you did it to them, you did it to me. Now, I love that. That really grabs me because he doesn't say, when you did it to them, it reminds me how much you love me. Or it doesn't say, when, you did it to, when he did it to them, I looked at that and said, that was a good deed. I bet you love me too. Jesus actually takes it as if you were doing it personally to him. And the thing was, those bad guys that he yelled at, that doesn't say he yelled, but I kind of assumed he yelled. I don't know, maybe he didn't. He is the king. He doesn't have to raise his voice. But those bad guys that got in trouble, do you know they didn't get in trouble for kicking the homeless person? They didn't get in trouble for shooting them with paintballs. They didn't get in trouble for taking someone's food. They just got in trouble for doing nothing. Does that grab you? Because we think... We think, oh yeah, as long as I just stick to myself and don't cause trouble, I'll be fine. I, I'm doing the right thing. But God's called you to something greater than that. He's put His life in you, His Spirit in you. You have the ability to do far more than just not do bad things. Thank God. You were not saved to prevent you from doing bad things. You were saved to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Jesus did not go about stopping himself from sin, trying not to do bad things. He went about showing the life of God, showing the love of God, and you have the same spirit. Now how stifling is it to keep that inside? How difficult is it to keep that inside? And so when we say, Oh Lord, I wish I could just touch you. I wish I could give you something. I, I'll give you everything. You have my heart. He says, Oh, you want to hug me? He says, Oh, you want to give me something? Good. Here's how. There are people that I'm going to put in your path. And when you give it to them, you're giving it to me. Oh, Lord, I love you so much. You've done such great things. Oh, your love for me is overwhelming. I don't know how to express it. And he goes, oh, here's how. Because I am walking the earth. I am here amongst you. And if you would see me and reach out and just, and all God's asking for you is to give what you've already been given. You see, the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. When I first heard that, it scared me. Because I knew much had been given. But that shouldn't be a scary thought. Because, listen to it, let's think it out, let's just stretch it out. To whom much is given, much is required. Does he say, to whom much is given, much more is required? Much is given, much is required. That means God doesn't require anything of you He hasn't already given you. You think, oh, this is too much. Oh, it's way too No, no, no. You just don't know what you've been given. Because God will never ask something of you that He doesn't have the ability to give you, that He hasn't already granted you. We're not meant to, come, to, to kind of be driving on empty and, and, you know, 
writing bad checks and all of these things. I mean, if God calls you to give, He's given you what you need to give. Trust Him in this. And He says, when you do that to them, you do it to me. That's huge. A few chapters earlier, He has some little children. And He makes it clear that these are little children that have believed in Him. Isn't that awesome? Children that probably didn't get the the full theology of all the prophecies. Children that didn't understand maybe every intricacy of what it meant to be the Messiah. You know, sometimes we think we've got to figure it all out before we can believe. But Jesus says, unless you become converted and like one of these little guys, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So what gets me about that is these kids probably had a very low intellectual grasp on who Jesus was, but they understood by faith. They grasped who he really was. And he says, if you offer one of these little ones a cup of water, or one of my disciples, you're giving it to me. He says, and you better not cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. So isn't it wonderful to know that even our children, we think, oh boy, they've got so much to learn. <laughs> I mean, many of you have heard this story. I was a little snot when I was a kid. Um, I was also nice at times, but I liked attention because I was the firstborn. And it's nice to have all that attention. And when my beautiful young sister, who's visiting us from Little Rock tonight, uh, when my beautiful young sister was born, uh, we always used to you know, when we take pictures, instead of saying cheese, we said Jesus, because apparently that was the Christian way to take pictures. And um, <laughs> we'd say Jesus. And in our first photo session, she's only uh, a newborn. In our first photo session, I look at her with scorn and say, she can't even say Jesus. <laughs> Just what's the use? She can't even say Jesus. Sometimes we think of little kids that way. We go, they don't even get it. They don't get what the atonement meant. They don't get what the... Uh, they don't understand the, the Old Testament sacrifice and how Jesus... It doesn't matter sometimes. They'll get that. That's important. But Jesus called these little kids and said, these ones believe in me. And he says, you've got to become like them. And he says, if you do something good for them... I count it like you're doing it for me. So do you see a trend here that throughout our lives, whatever we're doing, Jesus is saying, you're doing it to me. This is really awesome because we can live with a new uh, life, a new joy, a new uh, sense of fulfillment. And if you have a terrible job, in fact, let's look at Colossians for a minute. I want to show you uh, something we've talked about before, but Colossians chapter 3 you know, God is, uh, throughout the the Bible, God was uh, causing social change as far as slavery was concerned. Even though slaves were present in the Old Testament, uh, the way that God set it up with Israel was radically different than any other place. Slaves had rights. They had a day of jubilee where they'd be set free. They could be bought back. And uh, in all this, you understand that God's mercy was dealing with man where they were at. God was never in favor of slavery, but he was moving them out of it. And in the New Testament, it's very clear that it says several times that there's no difference between a slave and a free person. That was a radical thing to say in that day and age. 
I've told you this before, but Rome was built on slaves. The, emperor, the, the empire was funded. The wars were funded by the slave trade. That's how it kept going. You wonder how they could send so many troops all over the place and, and uh, fund all these wars. It was by slaves. You'd bring a bunch of slaves back, feed them into the system, and it just kept going. It was very common. It was a radical thing for the church to say there's no difference between them and us. There were laws in ancient Rome that gave slaves very little rights. In fact, less, less than rights. I mean, it kind of went the other way. And if one slave rebelled, they all, there was a law that got put into place at one point. If one slave rebelled, they all got killed because somebody should have known about it. There were just some terrible things that took place. And, and you, you have this radical gospel come along and say there's no difference. And in church services, the slaves get to sit up front. And you treat them as brothers, not as lesser members of society. Huge thing. Colossians chapter 3, in verse 22, he speaks to slaves because these guys got born again. They started coming to church. Their masters let them go for an afternoon. They got to go to church and they come to a community that treats them as equals. Can you imagine the joy you'd feel? Everybody's been spitting on you, treating you terribly, and all of a sudden you come to a place where you're honored as a human being and you've got a God that loves you and died for you and somebody's saying you're worth something to God and you're worth something to me, you're my brother. I mean, can you imagine that? The church was radically different than everywhere else. But there's the question that these slaves are sitting in their chairs and they're hearing, to God I'm equal. In Christ, there's no difference between me and a free person. Does that mean that God wants me to rise up and rebel? Does that mean I have the right to slit my master's throat in the middle of the night or, or just to run away? And the Bible addresses this in multiple places because it was a real issue. And here's what God said to them. God basically said to them this, don't do that. Walk in honor and you may win those masters to Christ. But if you start rebelling against your masters, it will shame the gospel. And you'll stop a lot of people from coming to the Lord. So here's what he tells them in verse 22. He says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. You say, God, that's not fair. You told me there was no master but you. You told me I could be slave to man no more but slave to you. Now you're telling me I have to obey this guy? He's mean. He stinks. I mean, he's stupid. He just happened to be born at the right time and I have to get his breakfast every morning. He says, slaves in all things obey your masters on earth, not with external service. Now, if you were a slave, do you think every morning you'd get up and go, thank you, Jesus, I get to be a slave. I love my job. Whistle while you work. Da -da 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 -da. And you know, they go, I mean, Everybody else brings home a paycheck. Hey, did you get a paycheck? No, I'm a slave. But that's the way I like it. You know, you wouldn't feel this way. Even if you were a good slave, you'd put on a smile and you'd do a good job and on the inside you'd be like, I just can't wait to be done with you. Right? That'd be the natural human reaction. Anybody who thought different would be mentally challenged because you're doing something for nothing. I mean, a lot of these people... 
They might have been first generation slaves. Maybe they had a nice life. Maybe they were a prince where they came from. And then somebody is making them change their baby's diapers all of the sudden. And this isn't the nicest thing. And then he says, so, so external service was about all you could expect from these guys, right? The most I could expect from you is to smile when you bring me my newspaper and my breakfast and just to treat me well, even though inside you just don't like me. But it says, don't obey them just with external service as those who merely please men. Now that's all you needed to do as a slave was to please your master. But he says that, those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Wow. In verse 23, he says, whatever you do, do your work heartily or from the heart, from, from the inside, as for the Lord, rather than for men. So somewhere in your mind, say, I'm no longer working for Brutus the idiot. I'm working for Jesus himself. And when I obey this guy, I'm going to obey him as if I'm obeying Jesus. And when I get him his breakfast, and when I change the outhouse bucket, I'm doing it for Jesus. And it says this, As for the Lord, rather than for men, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So look at this. He's saying, you've never got a paycheck as a slave in your life. But here's what God is offering you. You do it as unto the Lord, and I will pay you like you did it for me. Can you imagine what kind of a reward they had building up in heaven? What kind of a reward God had for them? Who, because they said, oh, I'm not working for you anymore. I'm working for the Lord. And that made, me a, that made them a better servant. That made them a better worker. That, they weren't just putting on a fake smile. They had real joy. Now, this is to slaves. You guys get paid. Some of you like your jobs. I hope you do. Could you apply this to your job? no matter who your boss is, no matter who you work with, if we say, whatever I do, do it from the inside, do it from the heart, as unto the Lord. Everything do as unto the Lord. Because God apparently counts that way. And we, we say, I mean, we will have wonderful times of praise and worship. And uh, in those times, you'll say, I mean, I wish my arms were longer, that I could stretch further. I'm so in love with you, Jesus. And he says, good. Would you like to show that love? Would you like to work that love out that I've already put in you? Would you like to demonstrate it? Because I've put people in your life that need that. And when you do it to them, you're doing it to me. And when you work and when you put your hand to something, do it for me. And it changes your attitude and everything. No longer are you grumbling. No longer are you looking for somebody to pay you back because I did it for him and he pays me back. I'll clean the toilets. I'll do anything because I know that my reward is with him. I don't need anybody to come along and pat me on the back. I don't need anybody to write me a big fat check. I'm doing it for him. And when I love, I don't love because they deserve love. I love because I was loved and I am loved and I will remain loved. And this is a way to live life all 
the time. And it just is something that sticks with you to realize that he said very clearly, the people you clothe, the hungry people you feed, the sick people you take care of, the people in prison that you visit, I'm counting that as if you're visiting me. And if that weren't enough, the people that you walk by and don't do that, I'm counting it like you walked by me and just kept walking. That's not easy to let go. And I don't want you to take this. See, many people have read this verse with such guilt that you really don't get any further. You read it with such guilt, you feel bad about yourself, and you just get further weighed down, and then you just, you just don't end up doing anything different. Maybe you try for a week and then you quit. You need to realize that everything you need, God's already put inside of you. You've been created for this. The Bible says you're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that He's prepared for you beforehand that you may walk in them. So you were custom made for this, for good works. You were designed for it. You say, I'm not cut out for this kind of stuff. You weren't cut out for this stuff, but you literally were cut out for it when Jesus recreated you. The things you used to be good at, you shouldn't be good at anymore. I'm talking about the bad things. I'm talking about the things you laid down when you got born again. You're a new person now. The things you are custom made for now are the things that He's prepared for you beforehand that you'd walk in them. And that's the greatest thing because that means you don't have to drum up your own business. You don't have to go find people. God's already got them for you. And if you'd wake up every morning and say, Lord, today, who is it? Today, bring them to me. He will honor that prayer request. I know because I regretted praying that. When I was a kid in school, we remember we'd sit down and we had devotions every day. And the thing I knew, I, my parents didn't tell me to pray this. I just knew it was the thing I wanted. I said, Lord, give me opportunities today. And then when he did, I was like, oh, man, why did I pray that? Because I was a shy kid. And I was just like, I wish I didn't have this. Because once you have that opportunity, you either chicken out and run away or you step up to the plate and let God work through you. And, uh, you know, if you're able to say that at the beginning of the day, Lord, I want to see you today. I want to see you today. Now, if I read my scripture correctly, when you say, I want to see you, it may not be a glorious light show on the wall of your living room. It may be that he sends someone to you that needs love. That he sends someone to you who needs food. That he sends someone to you who needs what you have. And he said, you said you wanted to see me today. Here I am. Here's your opportunity. Now, I'm not asking anything of you you don't have. And I'm not, God's not asking anything of you that he didn't first give you. He's the source. And you've got to look to him. And if you come to across a situation, this has happened to me a few times. You come across a situation, you go, God, this is too big for me. I can't meet that need. I can't do it. Then you realize that He can. You step back and you ask the Lord. Wait, what do you think Jesus did all His life? All His three years of ministry, every, through every place He went, do you think He just uh, knew a special way to touch somebody that all their sicknesses went away? Or do you think He received from the Father what He needed to give to them? You know, he was not, this wasn't a special carpenter ninja move that he just hit his finger on a pressure point. Oh, leprosy went away. This was not what happened. 
What he had for them, he got from the Father. Through the Holy Spirit. And you've got the same Holy Spirit. And the book of 1 John that we just read said you abide in the Father just as He abided in the Father. And the Father abides in you. And so, hey, this is cool because this means when you come across a situation, you go, this is too big for me. They have way too much need for me. God, You just step back and say, but God, this isn't too big for you. Is anything too big for God? Is anything impossible for God? And is there any reason God couldn't use you as a channel? And see, that's what He wants to use you as. A channel. And if we're willing to be used as a channel to all those people, man, He counts it like you're doing it to Jesus Himself. I want to remind you of the book of John, the end of it. Peter's done all those stupid things. Denied Jesus. In fact, he denied Jesus within earshot of Jesus because one of the gospels says the minute he denied Jesus for the third time and the rooster crowed Jesus turned and looked at him that's how close he was and Jesus didn't stop him didn't prevent him he just let him do it but forgave him and when Peter comes to the end and and Jesus forgives him and Peter's ready to just do anything, right? Lord, I'd do anything for you. I'd die for you. Here's what Jesus asks of him. He says, do you really love me, Peter, more than these? And Peter says, yeah, I do. He says, no. Then he says, okay, feed my sheep. And he goes, he goes yeah, I mean, all right. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you really love me. And he says, yeah. He says, okay, take care of my sheep. And he says, okay, all right, all right. He says, Peter, I, I need to know, do you love me? Yes feed my sheep care for my flock take care of these lambs in other words Peter Peter's thinking this is how I will show my love to God I'll die in a dramatic way I love you so much Jesus that I would do anything I would jump off a cliff I will will never I will never deny you again I will never have a rooster at my house I will just I'm just going to love you and I'll shout from the rooftops I love you Jesus I'll never deny you again and Jesus says okay if you love me here's how you love me you show your love you demonstrate your love you let that love come out that I gave to you because really the love we have for God must first come from God God is not asking for your love. He's asking for the love that He put in you. He already gave it to you. We love because He first loved us. You don't have the capability to love without His love. And so God's not asking for you to come up with your own special love for Him. He's just saying, pour out what I've already poured into you. And He says, Peter, here's how you do it. You take care of these ones. You take care of my people. You'll love me. You'll demonstrate that love. You've got that love. Here's how it's meant to come out. Take care of my people. And this is such a wonderful thing. Galatians 6 says, While we have the opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. So there's a special love that we're meant to have for one another. Jesus says, They'll know that you're my disciples by your love one for another. There is an epic, special love that we're meant to have for the members of His body. And He says, when you love one another, you're loving Me. But not only that, but God has called us to reach beyond His own body and even love the world as He did. And that kind of love is dramatic, it's life-changing, it's radical. 
And I want us to ask ourselves, just tonight, and every time it comes up, when you have those great moments, and you're just saying, God, I mean, when you really come to know and believe the love of God, because that's step one, right? You're not going to be able to love anybody until you fully believe that God loves you. You can't pour anything out unless you're able to have it poured into you. And so once you really, the Bible says the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And once, that, once you really grasp, I am loved, I am greatly loved, and then you, you realize and your heart feels like it's going to burst, and you, you have those moments where you go, God, I love you so much I can't even express it. If I, had, if I could write a million songs, they wouldn't do it justice. If I could speak in a thousand languages, I couldn't say it right. I love you that much. God at times is going to say, then stop talking. You want to hug me? Look for me. You want to give me something? There are some who need some food. And that's me that you're seeing. Colossians 3 says this. It says that once we're putting on that new self, which is being renewed according to the image of the one who created us, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, slave and free, barbarian, Scythian, but Christ is all, and Christ is in all. We need to be able to look around and see Jesus. Look around for Jesus where you don't expect to find him. Because maybe you've read a lot of books where people had dramatic experiences where Jesus showed up in their living room. You know what? That's awesome. And, uh, you know, that, that could, could very well happen to you. I, God does that at times. But you shouldn't have to wait for that experience every day. That's right. Jesus says, look around. When you see them and they need it, they need love, they need help, they need food, they need clothing, that's me that you're seeing there. I'm counting it as if you're doing it to me. When you go to your job and you feel like if I were just to please men, I could get by, I could even get a raise. And God says, not enough. You, why don't you stop working for him and start working for me? And when you do that, there'll be revival everywhere you go. There'll be love everywhere you go. There'll be life everywhere you go. Let's look for Jesus where he is to be found. He's in us. He's with us. Yes. But he's also in these brothers and sisters that God has given us. And we have an opportunity to give Jesus a hug. You've got an opportunity to give Jesus some food. You've got an opportunity to give Jesus some clothes. He's here. And he's in these brothers and sisters. They're part of that body of Christ. Even the least of them. That means the people that you've never counted for much. The people that you've never really given much credit for. Yes, the scripture says, hey, I mean, it talks about families where there were, there were husbands that weren't taking care of their family and they weren't doing anything. He says, he says, you need to work. He didn't tell the church to take care of them for the rest of their life. He said, that husband's able to work. You need to find a job. He says, if you, can't, if you don't start doing something to provide for your family, you're no, worse than a gent- you're no better than a Gentile. He says, if you don't work, you don't eat. But at the same time, you had people in the New Covenant Church, New Testament Church, the early church, that remember what happened when they got threatened and they came together and had a prayer meeting and the place was shaken and they were all filled with the Spirit. Do you know one of the first evidences of that infilling was? They started sharing everything. And as anybody who had need, they gave it. It was one of the first evidences of them being totally shaken by the Holy Spirit. 
it says, and great grace was upon them all for whoever had a need, they gave something to. Wow. God is honored by this. God is glorified. Now, you can hear this, you can read this with a sense of fleshly guilt, fleshly uh, condemnation, and you'll miss the whole point, and you won't have the ability, and you'll burn yourself out within two weeks. But if you can hear this by the Spirit and understand that God is the one that meets the needs, God is the one that heals the sick, God is the one that, as we read in 2 Corinthians 9, provides seed to the sower and bread for food. If you'll understand that God wants to do this through you, God is not asking you to do this without Him. He wants to do it through you. If you'll see it in the Spirit, then you'll be a channel of that love. You'll be an instrument of His love. You've got to first receive before you can pour out. And then when you can grasp that, God is not asking me to do this in my own strength. I can love Him with the love He gave me. We love because He first loved.